Okay, let's get the uh, last session going. So our, um, our, our closing plenary address, we're um, welcoming Buzi Tembequeo, who's going to, um, to give us a, a, our, our closing plenary. I, I have the, um, the bio here that is in the, in the program, which you can, you can all read, and it's very impressive, being the youngest director of the South African, um, on the South African Stock Exchange, of a, 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 a multinational company turning over billions. But what I thought was quite, um, quite interesting to whet your appetite is to read you some of um, comments from famous people who have, um, who have commented on his speaking. So John Howard, the former Prime Minister of Australia, called Vuzi the rock star of public speaking. And, um, and Clem Sunter said that he was simply riveting. And Bob Geldof said, well, I'm not sure if I can actually say what Bob Geldof said, but I will paraphrase that he was really good. <laughs> so, Vuzi, we look forward to a really good talk. Um, good afternoon. Might I confess that I uh, am very, very, very nervous. Uh, so, you're, you're going to excuse me if I... Uh, if I mumble a bit, uh, there's nothing more daunting than speaking to an audience of smart people, because you actually have to be careful what you say. Uh, so my name is Vossi Tembeguayo. I have the privilege of being with you for about the next uh, 45 minutes. Um, I will attempt to be provocative while using information, knowledge, and data, and, and I hope that you'll find that which I will present uh, useful in your own worlds and your own lives. Do I have your permission to step away from the podium? Is that okay? Fantastic. Oh boy, that feels better. Um, so, when I was briefed to come and speak here this afternoon, I thought, well, what can I say? Um, and I'll, I'll come back to why the title for my presentation in a minute. My mother always told me that it's rude to speak to people never having introduced yourself, so if you will indulge me, uh, allow me this. This is mom and dad. Uh, they met in the year 1965. They were 10. It was 20 years before I was born. Just to be clear, this is not a picture of mom and dad at 10. <laughs> it's just a picture of mom and dad that I like. I'm like, I like this one, you see? Right? My mom was hot. She really was. I tell her all the time, like, yo, ma, if you are not my mother, ha, yo, 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 me, yo, very good. Um, yeah, you can judge, that's okay. I come from Benoni. Anyone here from Benoni? Yay, it's not your fault. It's like, yeah, rock on, dude. Um, yeah, Benoni's great. I mean, we just, we just get a bad rep, innit? But Benoni's, Benoni's absolutely amazing. I've got to tell you, don't know if you know the history of Benoni, but the word Benoni is actually pronounced incorrectly. It's actually pronounced Ben-Oni. I know this because I love history and I went and studied the history of Benoni. So it turns out the first people to settle in what we know today as Benoni were Jewish people for whom the native language is Hebrew. Now in the Bible there's a fellow called Benjamin. Benjamin is a Hebrew word, it means son of my strength. The antithesis for Benjamin is Ben-Oni, it means son of my suffering. Which makes sense, because when they settled in Benoni, they were between Boxbeck and Prakpan. So there's a lot of suffering there, man. 
<laughs> this is me as a young lad winning the world championship in public speaking for the first time at 17. Uh, the teacher standing next to me to this day is still my public speaking teacher. Uh, her name is Mrs. Buchanan and now she trains me from Australia because she lives there and we, we do a session once a month um, uh, where she'll be training me. I won the world public speaking competition in the five-minute format the first time when I was 17, the second time when I was 20. When I was 20, I set a world record in the five-minute format, which still stands. All of this just to tell you, I'm really good. <laughs> so, um, a lot of people kind of know me from this. I was really humbled, actually, to be invited onto the den. Uh, between uh, all of us in this room, and please may it not leave this room, uh, we're now having conversations about bringing season two of the den. Uh, but I, I trained technically in finance, so I qualified as a chartered financial analyst, worked in investment banking. Um, so I was in private equity before I went into the den, and the den changed my life. It changed, I think, the entrepreneurs who came, but it certainly changed my life because I literally walked out of Dragon's Den and I realized that I wanted to become a part of the solution for building South Africa. But what happened at the den was interesting, as young people came to pitch, and you could almost get a complexion of who was going to pitch and the quality of their pitch based on gender and race. And specifically, if they were black and female, if you bet your money that, they could, that their pitch would be poor, you'd have a higher chance of succeeding than not. My own personal view is it's not because they're less competent. It purely is because the structure of our society hasn't given them the opportunities to prepare them for that. So today, as we speak, I'm leading the charge to raise what will be the largest ever round one raised venture capital fund in the continent. That We're looking to raise 1.1 billion rand. We've already raised about 650 million. And all of it, by the way, from outside South Africa, which is interesting. And we want to build a high-risk, high-risk, high, high high-return, high-growth venture capital fund that'll do not only education for entrepreneurs, but also financing their businesses. You know, the biggest problem we have specifically in South Africa is the cost of failure is too high. So that's why people don't start businesses, you see, because if you do and you fail, one, your family suffers, but two, you get blacklisted, which means you're out of the formal economy for seven years. And by the way, you've learned the lessons you now need not to, do, not to succeed the second time round, you see. So it's quite interesting that we've got that complexion. In fact, this tie, I was complimented on this tie before I got up. I bought this tie uh, in Paris. I was in Paris the day the attacks happened. Uh, I've got to tell you, it was absolutely hair-raising. So I was in Amsterdam doing some work, and, and, then we, and then I did some work in Germany. And my wife and two kids traveled with me, which they rarely do, but it was my son's fifth birthday. So we sort of took them with on the sojourn. And the one day I had off, I said to my wife, well, you know, we should go to Paris and go to the Disneyland. And we did. We got in Paris at 7 o'clock in the morning, and we caught a taxi, went to Disneyland, and we came back into Paris around 7 o'clock in the evening, and we couldn't get into town. Just couldn't get in. It was absolutely gridlock. Uh, the fellow who was driving us knew some of the back, the back routes, so he went through the suburb of Bastille. And at the top of the suburb of Bastille, you look right into the center of, of, um, of Paris. And then we heard a loud bang. Now, uh, just to give you a bit of a, a sense, where we were to where the stadium was would be like being here and the stadium is on William Nickel. But you, we heard the bang. That's how loud it was. And then you could actually feel it. It's absolutely extraordinary. This brings me to what it is that I'd like to speak to you here today.
I used to work for an interesting company called Metro Cash and Carry. Some of you here might know them. A fascinating business. Uh, Metro Cash and Carry used to be known as the Mighty Metro. In 1996, Metro Cash and Carry was larger than Pick and Pay and ShopRite combined. She was a 47 billion rand mammoth. By 2007, Metro Cash and Carry was 14 billion rand. Today, Metro Cash and Carry no longer exists. It's an interesting question about how does a company that is that large in less than two decades find a space where it no longer exists? How, when was the last time any of you here bought a CD? You can put up your hand, it's okay. Is it your gray hair, sir? What is interesting now is if you buy a CD, it's hard to find a place to play it. You ever notice that? Yeah. Um, you, did you buy an LP as well? Because, okay, good. But the point I will seek to make over the next few minutes with you is how the very way you and I have framed what is happening in business is actually incorrect. That's my first point. The second point I will make is that instead of us looking to the rest of the world for examples around disruptive innovation, the rest of the world should look to us. Because if you really want to see disruptive innovation work and add value in an economy, nowhere else does it happen better than in this own continent of ours. And finally, the third point I'll hope to make is what you and I can do in our own spaces to become a part of the positive change that's required from that perspective. So I told you I trained in finance which means I hate motivational helium. It's kind of why I hate my title as well and how the world understands me. Because we do a lot of technical work in the business and we support it with research. And in my view, if you can't find the numbers and the data to support a thesis or hypothesis, then that hypothesis is nothing more than your opinion. So let's try and ground what I'm about to say over the next few minutes in some numbers. Let's take two companies that you both know. Pick and Pay and ShopRite. Both companies operate in the same markets sell the same commodities to the same customers. They have similar strategies. They draw talent from the same places. And I want you to have a look at what happens to their revenue lines over about a period of a decade. So in 2003, pick and pay was 30 billion. By uh, 2010, she'd grown to about 59 billion. 2013, 63 billion. And now in last year, they did just under 65 billion rand. So in a 10-year period, pick-and-pay has doubled her top line. Any of you here who are pick-and-pay shareholders, stockholders in pick-and-pay? How many of you here think that in a 10-year period, a doubling of a top line in a mature industry is good results? Sure, it's good results. The question is, is, is it a great result? But here's what the numbers don't tell you, hidden in the nuance of this, is in that same period from 2003 to 2014, you've had an emergence of a new class of consumer, more specifically a black middle class that is growing exponentially every single year. What it also doesn't tell you is that there's a price compounded annual growth rate, an inflation growth rate, built into those numbers of about 2.9% each and every year. When you compound that over time, all of a sudden, a doubling in revenues over a 10-year period actually looks okay but not fantastic. Let's have a look at ShopRite. In 2003, ShopRite was 29.4 billion to 2003, pick and pay is 30.6 30 billion. ShopRite is 29.4. That means Shop, pick and pay had a billion rand advantage in top line. I come from retail. A billion rand top line advantage over your competitor is a mile apart. It's a huge distance, specifically because you're generating three, maybe 4% net margin in your business every single year. A billion rand is a lot of money. 2010, let's have a look at what happens. ShopRite joins the fold. 
And all of a sudden, in 2010, ShopRite begins to show signs that she's going to outperform pick and pay. More specifically, in 2010, ShopRite was 63 billion. 2013. I want you to have a look specifically at the time period. So 2003 to 2007, small incremental advantage over six financial years, seven calendar years. 2010 to 2013, half the period, and all of a sudden that advantage is exponential. Let's see what ShopRite did last year. So in the last financial year, those of you who, like me, when I'm bored, by the way, I've got to make a confession. When I'm bored, I read annual financial statements. I love reading a balance sheet. Oh, yeah, you don't understand. I could. I could just sit all night and like, yo, how did they do this to the assets? Man, I really do. And then I write little papers on it. I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. Um, but 2014, ShopRite did 114 billion rand in their financial year. I say the number, and I think it's difficult often for people to comprehend it, so let me break it down for you. At 114 billion, Dama Senera, is, as near as makes no difference, about 10 billion rand a month. If you assume four working weeks in a month, it's 2.5 billion rand a week. Assume five working days a week, it's 500 million rand a day. Assume 10 working hours a day, it's 50 million rand an hour. It's about a million a minute. The next time you walk past a shop right, take off your shoes, go on your knees, and bow to the gods <laughs> that run that business. So I've got, I got, got to tell you, I, I got to meet both the leaders of Pick and Pay and ShopRite. Uh, this was just after Richard Brasher took over, and I'm a huge fan of Richard, and I think if you have a look at their last financial results, it seems all of a sudden that loyalty programs he's put in place and how they're using their shopper card are beginning to deliver results. And then I got to spend a week with Whitey. Whitey, by the way, is like a walking book of business philosophies. They're just not very well written. <laughs> and often not, they don't sound philosophical. So I said, Whitey, how did this happen? He says, you know, but the problem with many oaks in business, I, is the oaks think, think, not think, the oaks think that strategy is something you write down and then you put it on a file somewhere and maybe it happens, I. So strategy is what you do in your business every day, I. I said, really? Yeah, yeah, he says. And the other problem is too many oaks are just scared to take, you know, just take a chance, just take a chance, do something new, but do something new. You call, you oaks in consulting, you call it being disruptive, eh? I call it just fucking do it, die. <laughs> By the way, I'm quoting him verbatim. <laughs> so I said, really? Well, tell me a time you guys have to do something new. And he sits and he thinks for a minute. He goes, you remember in 1991 when Mandela was released from prison and the ANC and the National Party was negotiating for the new South Africa? You remember? I said, yes, sir, I, I do. He said, you remember that the IFP did not want the ANC negotiating for you, you people? You remember? I said, me people. Yes, sir, I do. <laughs> and then he says, around the same time the IFP was not happy, they were marching into the townships and killing people and burning down stores and looting them. You remember? I said, I was about six. <laughs> but I've seen the archive videos. He said, right. Now, the word got out there in the large businesses of South Africa run by us, White Oaks, that if you want to grow your business, you can do anything, just don't open up a shop in the township side. I said, what did you do? He said, I went to the board, old Christian the Oaks, and I said to them, I said, Mana, we need to grow this business. And the only way she grows is if we take her to the people in the townships. I said, what did they say? He said, well, you've met Chris Tuai. He's a lawyer. So he took about two hours to tell me no. <laughs> so I said to him, right, so what did you do? He said, I listened to him, and then I told him to fork off. <laughs> 
I love Whitey, I really do. When I grow up, I want to write a book about Whitey Basson. Whitey Basson, in my view, is probably the most iconic business leader in South Africa today. Without question, he's the one CEO of a listed company with the most enviable track record. Let me give you a sense of the man's mind space. He's been running ShopRite since 1978. Uh, 1978, for those of us who lack context in history, was a year after Steve Biko was mercilessly murdered by the apartheid police. It was two years after Hector Peterson and a hundred of other young learners in Soweto were attacked by the police in Soweto. He's been running it since 78. He saw it grow from six stores in an uh, exclusive suburb of Franschhoek and Stellenbosch in Cape Town to the rest of the Western Cape and the rest of South Africa, white suburbs. You remember that pre-90s, white business wasn't allowed to operate in the townships. When the 90s came, he went to his board and he said, we need to open up shops in the townships. Now, the interesting thing is, by the way, his board was right when they said no. The first, first store he opened up in Duduza was burned down within six months of being opened because there was fighting in the country. In, nine, in 2003, the largest store by turnover in the ShopRite group was in Cape Town, more specifically in a place called Milnerton. In 1994, the largest store by turnover in the ShopRite group was at the capital of Viagra, a place called Goodwood in Cape Town. <laughs> you guys are smart. I know you got that. I actually wrote that joke while I was busy. I'm like, I'm like, this one's going to be good, man. They're going to like it. Sir, write it down. It'll come to you in a minute. Anyone know the largest store by turnover in the ShopRite group today? Anyone? You might imagine it's in a township. Their Soweto store was the largest in 2008. Last year, it didn't even make it into their top 10. The largest store by, the shop, by turnover in the ShopRite group today is not even in a township. It's in a peri-urban area, a place called Tohoyando. Their second largest store by turnover is in Deepsluit. What is interesting is Deepsluit is only an eighth the size of their store in Milnerton. It does 63 times the revenue per square meter. For those of us who don't believe me, when you leave here, just drive past Deepsluit at 7 o'clock in the evening when it's still open, that store, there is a queue filing all the way outside the store. Their store in Ebony Park never has enough, never has enough, have enough maize meal for the, for the demand at any given week in time. So when we look at the numbers, there's one thing for us to say, oh, that's great growth by the business. What we don't understand is behind that was a set of leaders and managers who took a very brave set of decisions. My argument here today will be that you and I are called on to do exactly that in business today. Often to look past the empirical evidence and the data and to take brave decisions about our strategies and our tactics. It's now known all over the media that their store in Luanda, and I've been to the store because when I saw the stats, I didn't believe it. Their store in Luanda, in Angola, sells Modon Perignon in a single day than all of their checkers liquor stores in all of South Africa for the entire year. That, doesn't, that shouldn't scare you. Listen to this. They have a store in Makoko. When they opened it, it was intended to be a retail store. They've just converted it now into a wholesale store. But their store in Makoko, and those of us who've been to Nigeria know that Nigeria is a, a hugely growing place. But you land at Mutara Airport and you drive to Victoria Island, which is where all the offices are and where all the fancy people who have money live, and you literally drive to an island. So you drive on a five-lane freeway that goes over the water. At the place where the water starts is a slum area called Makoko. The population of Makoko is two million million. A slum area. It's shacks. People living on water. So the shacks are suspended above two meter stilts on water. You know what they've been saying about black people in water? It's not true. 
I saw them. They were there in the water. These very brave, but they were there. Right? Their store in Makoko, now listen to this, sells or sold rather last year more maize meal than all of their ShopRite branded stores in South Africa, Swaziland, Lesotho, Botswana, and Namibia for the entire year. It is an extraordinary number. So when we see these numbers, what I'd like us to appreciate is behind it are a group of leaders who are willing to admit that often what worked in the past will not work in future. The operating model in those countries has tended to be very different. It's this thing called the exponential organization. Now, when I was in Amsterdam, I shared the stage with Salim Ismail, but he wrote the book about the exponential organization, and the point they make is an interesting one, that at the instance at which, as a team and as a team of managers and leaders, you find out that your, that your competitor is on an exponential growth curve, you cannot respond. I call it the Usain Bolt effect. So Usain Bolt, interesting, is six foot six, foot six or six five. Uh, there's been scientific studies to try and understand the optimal build for a 100-meter athlete. And the studies have revealed that they should be about six foot and should weigh about 93 kilos. It looks like the American runners, uh, not too tall, stocky like rugby players. Usain Bolt is 6'5", and he weighs 89. He's too tall and too lanky. The reason it needs to be 6 foot, by the way, is because the distance between the knee and the elbow, the knee and the, uh, the ankle at 6 feet is the optimal distance that in the first 30 meters you take a certain number of steps to propel you forward. The reason it's 94 kilos is because you need a certain amount of weight when you take those certain number of steps to accelerate even farther. So, Usain Bolt is too tall. Watch any Usain Bolt race, and one of the things you realize is he never wins off the starting blocks. If he's lucky, he's on par with the line. He really wins the race in the last 30 meters. So why is this called the Usain Bolt effect? Because at the instance at which you pick up that Usain Bolt is right next to you running, there's no ways you're going to beat him. And this is kind of the challenge that you have when you then try to chase an incumbent. The point I'm making here is I think we're talking in business a lot about change and how important change is. I don't think what's happening in the world right now is change. I think what's happening in the world is a lot more aggressive. Change is linear. It starts one place, it ends at another, and it follows an often predetermined process. And if you hire McKinsey, they'll give you a very nice change management process. <laughs> no one is here from McKinsey, right? Or Bain, or one of them, right? Yeah? But they'll give you a nice process to manage you through this linear process. Why? Because you can kind of tell the end view. That's not what's happening in business today. What's happening in business today is a fundamental transformation. And not a transformation is how we say it here in South Africa when we're having a political conversation, but a transformation of how we think and how we work. So by metaphor, change is what the frog goes through, from tadpole to frog. It starts out a single thing. It morphs and changes until it ends the end form, but the beginning state dictates the end state. Transformation is what a caterpillar goes through from being the dirty caterpillar to the beautiful butterfly. The beginning state in no way resembles the end a transformation. So, there was an interesting company called Ox Baron. Ox Baron used to manufacture Ox wagon wheels. The reason they're an interesting company was because if I was speaking about Ox Baron in this room, just over 100 years ago, all of you would have known who they are. In 1898, Ox Baron was just over 50 million US dollars a year turnover. Now, I'd like you to appreciate, in 1898, being a half a billion rand company was a hell of an achievement. Why? Because they had no head office, no HR, no IT, no SAP, no ERP, no conference, no strategy, no balance scorecard. You get the point, right? <laughs> because just people run, 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 run. 
half a billion rand they generated in top line. The guy who was running it, one of the Lawrence brothers, hired a young engineer, and he said to this young engineer, I believe our business is changing, but I'm not sure why. He said, I'd like you to run our innovation center, sound familiar, and tell us what the future will look like. This young lad had just qualified as a mechanical engineer at the tender age of 23. So they gave him a corner office and a budget, and they said, innovate. Just don't disrupt what we're doing, but innovate. And this young lad was locked in his office. The story is told like myth and legend, by the way. He was locked in his office for six months. Six months later, he walks out. Cobwebs everywhere, you might imagine. His glasses thick and murky with all the formulae and his dust coat now all over the place. And he marches into the boardroom of, Smith, of these guys at Oxbury and he says, guys, I've worked it out. He says, you've gotten good over 100 years of making something that in 20 years' time, no one's going to need. Uh, you might imagine what they said to him. Uh, it ended with your fight. So he left, went back to his home country and raised some venture funding. That young man's name was John Boyd. His last name was Dunlop. The recommendation he made for them was that they should move from Oxwagon wheels into manufacturing rubberized tires. The very first product he made, by the way, was a bicycle for his son seeking to prove the concept of rubberized automotive technology. Oxbaron no longer exists. Dunlop, the world's third largest producer of tires in the world today. See, the transformation, ladies and gentlemen, happens whether you and I admit to it or not, whether we like it or not, whether it suits us or not. Ten years ago, if I asked you who was the largest asset management firm in the country, you would have quoted one of the big names. Today, it's, was, it's two companies that were boutiques ten years ago, operating out of Cape Town. So the point I'm making is that the change happens whether we like it or not. I, uh, I've got to tell you, guys, I had the privilege of speaking at a conference in New York, as you do, uh, they flew me economy. Unbelievable. <laughs> How do you, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? No, who are you? So anyway, they flew me economy. <laughs> and I was speaking at this conference. I've got to tell you, by the way, that you know, speakers are fairly funny creatures, but any good speaker, one worth his weight, certainly, will try and insist to client that they speak in one of two spots, either opening the conference or closing it. You know, because, well, nobody remembers the guys in the middle. <laughs> That's a joke, Louis, that's a joke. <laughs> Louis is like, oh, geez, this guy. So, so anyway, I was speaking at this conference, I, and I, I arrived to speak at this conference, and I'm the penultimate speaker, which means there's a guy speaking after me. I go to the conference organizer, I say, how dare you? Who's speaking after me? Who has the audacity, the unmitigating? She said, Malcolm Gladwell. I said, oh, sure, yeah, fine, that's cool. <laughs> it's Malcolm. Uh, my topic for that presentation, by the way, is, was why Malcolm Gladwell was wrong. And I didn't know he was speaking after me. Malcolm Gladwell wrote an interesting book called Outliers. I imagine some of us here have read it. And in the book, he referenced someone's research. By the way, Malcolm's singular power is his ability to connect what are often disjointed pieces of logic. He will look at erratic pieces of data from unrelated pieces of time or times and periods of time, and he'll connect them to make a singular piece of logic stand. He is a genius. If you ever watch the movie The Beautiful Mind, that's what Malcolm Gladwell does with research. He's able to find patterns in things that are often not related. But Malcolm wrote this book, The Outliers, right? And he referenced someone's research, and the research proved that if you committed yourself to 10,000 hours of diligent application and study for 10,000 hours in a singular discipline, you join the top 1% of people in the practice of that craft. And Malcolm was right. It is true. But you see, the reason I said Malcolm was wrong was because this piece of logic makes one single underlying assumption, that the set of skills you require don't change. 
And so if you've spent 10,000 hours getting really good at something that is no longer relevant in the manner in which you've gotten good at it at, you might as well have spent no time getting good at it at all. So speed is now more important than spending that 10,000 hours. So let's get into this thing about the fundamentals of modern business. I'm, I'm trying to explain the change. I'll tell you what to do about it. And then I'll try and close by telling you why, even after I'm done here and all the presentations that you've heard, and you will continue to hear more presentations about the need for us to transform how we work and think, you are not likely to actually make that transition. So let's go on a fictional journey. I want to take you back about, well, a million years ago. There was this fellow, his name was the caveman. Why? Well, he was a man. He lived in a cave. Now, the caveman was a fairly solemn fellow. He didn't have any sense of community. Often, the only sense of community he had was his partner and their children. But the caveman had no technology to protect him from the elements either. So in the coldest of winters, he simply had to bear it out. And in the warmest of summers, he had to bear it out as well. He couldn't protect himself from any large predators bar some rudimentary form of technology. One day, the caveman is in a cave with his friend, and they're playing around with some sticks. Uh, it seemed that that day, DSTV was disconnected. But they're playing around with some sticks, the caveman and his mate, and they knock some sticks together and or some stones together, and guess what happens? It sparks. And the caveman goes, do that again? And they knock it again, and it sparks. And he then says to his friend, well, let's get some dry grass. And they get some dry grass and some sticks, and they keep sparking it, and there you have it, the discovery of manufactured fire as we know it. Why is that important? Well, it's, in my view, the very first time humanity encountered technology. See, with the discovery of fire, the caveman could warm up the cold winter nights. He could protect himself against much larger predators. Let's fast forward to about three, four hundred years ago. The idea of the identity nation state is now being built. Countries rather than tribes and communities. But building a country is often something you build only through conflict and war. The problem with war, specifically in this age, is it requires two things. Much larger army and a closer proximity. The closer you are to your competitor with a larger, well-trained group of men, the higher your probability of winning that war. Well, somebody looked at that and said, well, that's broken. Could we change that model? And they did, and was invented the gun, as you and I know it, a method through which you could hurt your opponent without necessarily being close to him. Technology. Let's fast forward to now, 180 years ago, we're at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Great Britain, as she likes to be called, I like to call it just Britain, but Great Britain, who credits herself with the <laughs> Great Britain, who credits herself with the creation of the Industrial Revolution, says the problem humanity has is people work from sunup until sundown. You can't work in an industrial environment in the evening because it's dangerous. You work from sunup to sundown. Well, somebody cracked that problem, and they discovered electricity, and all of a sudden. The method of working 24 hours a day, creating shift labor, was what became a mode of technology. The point I'm making is the change happens. Now, I'm told back in the day, this is a really long time ago, uh, people used to travel using ships. Uh, this, to me, explains why we blacks stayed here. Because we were like, what? In the water? Oh, go where? The other side of what? The what? No, there's just water there. Okay, Johan, you go. <laughs> By the way, I hope, I hope you don't take any umbrage, but can I, can I just decide, can I make a, a personal plea? I do think as South Africans, we are way too sensitive about race. I really do. If you think about it, all of us want the same thing. We want to live in a country that's safe, where you have reasonable prospects to raise a family and provide for them, 
Get an education that makes you globally competitive. You want to jog at 11 o'clock at night and know no one's going to harm you. And if you got hurt in public, you want to know that the public education system and or health system can take care of you. Put up your hand if you don't want any of those five things. We all want the same thing. My view is the politics that divide us. And we allow it by being sensitive about racial things. We are different. No one's the same. We're just different. It's like my business partner, Christian Foster. He's a CISI. God bless him. And Christian is from Bloemfontein, which is important because, you know, it means he's also previously disadvantaged. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, I was saying to him the other day, I said, you know, Christian, you are a white male from Bloemfontein. Of the fact that you are from Bloemfontein means you are previously disadvantaged. And you are a white male, which means you are presently disadvantaged. <laughs> so actually, when we fill in the scorecard, you must score twice, because you are PDI, twice. Uh, uh, but uh, Christian and I often make jokes about this. And, you know, the, so so we, we bought a home, and as you do now, those of us who can, we buy a home with a swimming pool, which is a fascinating thing, because I watch my black brothers and sisters. For us, the swimming pool thing means different things to white people. Uh, for you guys, it's utility and usage. For us, ownership is enough. <laughs> Am I lying? Yeah? All my black brothers, put up your hand if you discovered only through having a swimming pool that water can actually form algae. Put up your hand. You're like, oh, this water's not clean, just, just. You must actually do something. Ah, amazing. Eh? So I'll never, forget, I'll never forget the day I bought and Christian moved in. And, uh, well, he didn't move in. He came to see my home. And he went outside and he saw the pool. You should have seen his face just gleaming with excitement. He went into my guest bathroom. Three minutes later, Christian is walking out of the guest bathroom, wearing a Speedo and slops. Nothing on the top. And as a Zulu man, by the way, that's offensive to me. I can't walk through my kitchen bare-chested. And here this oak marches through my kitchen bare-chested, you know, with fluff all over the chest. <laughs> goes outside to the pool. Now, I'm watching him, by the way. I've been living in this home for four years. I know exactly where the deep end is, but I've never been in the pool. Which is another thing about us. Hey, my brother, we can tell. You know the signs. When the, when the water changes color, you're like, yeah, danger there is. So anyway, I, I want to make a point very quickly. So Christian goes, he stands at the deep end, he puts his hand above his head, and he dives in to the water, disappears for a few seconds, pop up at the shallow end. And you know, I love how white people come out of water and it's, don't you love that? It's like you could hear Tchaikovsky playing, eh? And they do the, <sighs> always so glorious, you know, as well, but he's, <sighs> anyway, just a bit of jest, just a bit of jest, eh? So the invention of travel. Well, let's have a look at how the humanity used to travel first using ships. Well, the Wright brothers thought that that was broken, right? So they invented the principles of flight you and I still use in aviation today. The very same plane you fly in still uses the very same principles of flight that the Wright brothers wrote when they invented the principles of flight as we know it. Can I get a sense in the room? Put up your hand if you once owned a library card. Yeah? I mean, having a library card was a source of pride. And you would go to the library, where I'm from, you used to take two taxis to get to the library. It was a journey just going there. And when you walked into the library, you were at the mercy of the god of knowledge, the librarian. You know, and she often had glasses sitting about somewhere here, and she'd give you funny looks. But the librarian was a technocrat. She had a system that indexed books and knowledge by a specific system that she designed. She was an absolute genius. Well, somebody thought that problem was broken too because it inferred you needed to go somewhere to access the knowledge. And that if somebody had the new knowledge that you'd wanted, you had to wait until they returned that book for you to access it. And what was invented then? Well, the principle of the internet as we know it. Which means that as I'm telling you statistics, some of you are on your phones checking whether or not those stats are true. 
I told you about ShopRite turnover. One, statistically, there are at least five people in this room who went and checked whether or not that was ShopRite's turnover. All of a sudden, the information is available and ubiquitous without limitation. Technology. So the point I'm making is that innovation exists in transformation, and I'll try and explain this in a minute. One of my clients, which I'm very proud to work with, is a company called Jurex. You all know them. <laughs> Jurex is the world's largest producer of condoms. Um, they manufacture 63 million condoms a month. And they only control something like 31% of the global market share. I've been asking them for a while to send me the data about where these condoms are going, but they won't. Uh, I have it on good authority that they have a container that they ship every six weeks to a place called Ngandla. <laughs> We're not sure why, but it goes there. We're also told that it has six different flavors. Um, <laughs> in equal proportion. <laughs> so Durax has been trying to reimagine their business in this transformative age. And I want you to imagine the world of Durax. They take something as unpleasant as polymer and plastic and shape it into something two human beings will use in the most intimate thing two people or more will ever do. <laughs> so let's not underestimate the technology required to manufacture a condom. But Durex has a problem, and their problem is that they believe the internet is changing their space. They believe, in less than 50 years, that people will be intimate without necessarily being in the same room. And they've been trying to, in their own business, create a product that would allow that. Now, let's test this. There was a time you needed to know someone and be in the same room with them to have a communication. Today, through social media, you can connect with a person and not even be in the same continent. Most of us found out about Paris using social media before it broke on the news. I was in London, sitting in a flatmates of mine in Paddington, finding out that Adam Habib had just been summoned by learners in uh, Wits University at, uh, at uh, what is now called Solomon House, and I was watching the entire thing happen live on Periscope. No broadcaster needed, just me connected to another person on their Periscope account. So they're saying in this world where people can transmit visuals and they can transmit sound, business that we're in as Jurex is in the world of transmitting touch. If people can't touch each other, they can't be intimate. So here's the question. Is it possible to touch someone over the internet? <laughs> now, I'm gonna share with you what they've done. Take it if you would. Oh, baby cat. Hey, baby. <laughs> What's happening? Oh, I missed you. I missed you too. I want to touch you. I want to touch you too. I, I really want to touch you. Hey. <laughs> Do it. Do it? Do it. You're not going to know where it comes from. Oh, no. Technology these days is a lot about how things are combined in unique ways. Underwear and, and touch and remote presence is something that's never been done. I'm Ben, I'm from Seapo. When we heard about Jurex's idea for Funderwear, after the laughter had stopped, we knew it was going to be an awesome project. Funderwear is a project about transferring touch uh, across you know, vast distances, and th that's really a first for first globally. One of the most interesting parts of the project was how do we transfer that touch from a phone uh, to a piece of underwear. 
when it came down to miniaturization, the best the best technology we found were these actuators that they use in phones. So as you touch your phone, you feel a little sort of a thump or a little sensation coming back to give you feedback that you've touched the phone. And we used that technology because they were so small and so low power, and we created a, an array of touch sensors or touch actuators that were able to transfer that touch. Your phone talks to an Amazon server. The Amazon server is talking to another person's phone. So we have that, that cross-link, two phones linked by an Amazon server on the internet. What's unique is that each of those phones is then actually connected to a garment and to the, to the lingerie and to the mail underpants. Put up your hand if you want one. <laughs> uh, so don't be jealous. They gave me a pair for free. So I've got a pair. My wife's always complaining that I'm traveling. And I went to her and I said, baby, I think I've fixed our problems. <laughs> And I've got to tell you, we tried it. I was in Abu Dhabi and I called my wife. We tried it and it works. It really works. Eh? <laughs> the only problem is MTN kept dropping the phone. <laughs> but it works. Right? So here is a business that's thinking in a transformative way. They're not asking themselves, how do we make smarter, better condoms? They're asking themselves, what, really, what business are we in and what does that business look like in the digital age? The argument I'm making here is that what you do will always exist, but how it is delivered changes. And it changes because disruption occurs. And when does disruption occur? We've done a lot of research in our firm to try and understand what is the very basic essence of disruption. But disruption occurs, guys, when three conditions hold. If someone can do what you do cheaper, they have a, an opportunity to disrupt. If they can do it faster, they have the opportunity to disrupt. If they can do it better, they have the opportunity to disrupt. If they can do all three simultaneously, they will definitely disrupt. That's it. Whatever product you're selling, no matter how technical, at the end of the day, it comes down to the basic principle of can somebody do it cheaper or better or faster. When we were doing this research, I got to meet a good old man, Reed, who's the founder, by the way, of Netflix. Uh, the story about how he went to a store to try and rent a DVD, and uh, that's how he came up with Netflix, that story is fictitious. It's not true. It just sounds like great American PR. But he came up with the idea of Netflix. Netflix was first in the business where you could rent DVDs online, then moved into the business where you can stream content online. The new business Netflix is in is the manufacturer of their own content. So House of Cards has won 13 Emmy Awards. The last season of House of Cards not cost Netflix 100 million US dollars to make. That is significant when you consider that Netflix is a 1.7 billion US dollar a year business. 5% of their turnover into one product. But you see, for them, they're in the business of disrupting their own business model, of getting into new things all the time. If you look at IT, well, here's a business that, in my view, doesn't get the credit it deserves. IBM, or I've been moved, depending on which you like. IBM started out pre-World War II in the business of manufacturing turbulators, clocking systems. By the way, if you want to know how Hitler knew who was where at any concentration camp, he used IBM. The technology used by the Nazi government was the technology developed by IBM. So they started out in that business, moved into the business of mainframes, again, pre my time, but this is what my research tells us. And now they've moved into the business of cloud. So a fundamental transformation of their business and how they're operating. We speak about how do we deliver a consistent and amazing customer experience. When we were doing this research, we interviewed the guys at McDonald's. McDonald's is a fascinating business. Why? Because if there is one thing McDonald's is not, it doesn't deliver a superior product. Let's be clear. I don't know if there's anyone here from McDonald's, but the truth is, the McDonald's burger is so fake, they could fax it to you. <laughs> it's true. If I tweeted you McDonald's chips, it would carry the same nutritional value. <laughs> if this is true, and my argument is that it is, then why is McDonald's the largest fast food company in the world? If their product is not superior, then what are they doing right? McDonald's has this as their holy grail. They call this the holy grail of their customer experience. They say, in a transformative age, you have to focus on four things when you're delivering a customer experience. Number one, 
be relevant to your point. Make sure that what you offer your customer is personalized and meaningful. And here is, in my view, the opportunity for disruption in the insurance space. Can you really personalize a product? There's a fellow called Max Levchin. If you don't know him, Max Levchin used to be part of the PayPal mafia. Max Levchin left PayPal and started a series of other businesses. The one he's running now is a fascinating company called Affirm. And what does Affirm do? Well, they use data that's sitting in the analytics warehouses as well as data sitting on the internet to try and create an insurance premium for just you. So they will look at not only how you've conducted yourself in the past and how many times you've claimed, and they'll arrive at a certain premium, and then they go into your social media networks, and they look at your Twitter place, and they look at where have you been? Were you in Paris the day the bombs happened? Were you in Kenya before that? Well, there's been two terrorist attacks there in less than a year, so that pushes up your premium, right? Uh, did they, and then they have a very clever system that actually picks up and reads imagery. And the system will tell them if you have a picture on Facebook where you're standing with your eyes red and holding something that looks like a, a glass of alcohol, and that'll push up your premium too. So what is he doing? He's looking at an opportunity for large insurance companies to personalize the premium based not only on your behavior given by the insurance houses, but also your behavior as you're volunteering it on the internet all the time. Personalized and meaningful. Number two, McDonald's says make sure what you offer is convenient. What does that mean? Offer the customer choice. Give it to them when they want it, timeliness, but most importantly, be consistent. You know the thing about customer experience is if you're inconsistently good, that's actually worse than being consistently bad. When you suck, you suck. People are not surprised at it. But when you're good, then you're not. Then you're good, then you're not. That's really when you have a poor customer NPS. Be reliable. Whatever your brand promise, keep it. So Whitey Besson spent an hour lecturing me about how they are the value discount retailer in South Africa. And he will fight to the bone to win on any price category against his competitors on any given day. That's his value proposition. He says, even if we make an operating loss on a trade, if I have to keep my brand promise, I'll keep my brand promise. And then finally, listen, be responsive. And listen, not with the intent to respond as many of us do in businesses, but listen with the intent to understand. Can I show you another disruptive example? I'm gonna take you next door to Zimbabwe. I noted the fellow, the Zimbabwean fellow earlier who asked a question about, do you really believe the things you're saying? <laughs> Great question. Um, <laughs> what can I say? But um, we have a client in Zimbabwe, let's say we have a client, we actually helped them do a balance sheet restructure and then we participated in, uh, in uh, um, shareholding of that business. They're a company called Sumitomo, they're a rubber company and one of their largest businesses is in Zimbabwe. They have a fascinating story about what happened to their business in Zimbabwe. You remember Zimbabwe in 2005 and there and thereabout. How many of you here would be operating within a strategy in the first year the inflation rate is 585%? And so what do you do when the inflation rate is 585%? Well, you know, you rethink the strategy a little bit, you recalibrate, you develop a new set of deliverables, then you say, right, guys, go. But you use the same thinking in that environment. And you go, please, Uncle Bob, don't do anything else silly. Please, 585%, let's drop it now. Well, Uncle Bob listens to you and he delivers the following year an inflation rate of 1,281%. And you go, whoa, okay, so we need to rethink that strategy, so let's rethink the strategy, let's do things a bit more differently, let's, well, what do you start doing now? Now you retrench a few people, you implement a SAP system, you try to get a bit clever, right, you get efficient. You go, right, please, Uncle Bob, please, geez, dude, calm down now, right, let's, you know, 1,281%, come on, Uncle Bob, help us out here. Uncle Bob does listen, and the following year he delivers an inflation of 66,000%. Uh, by now, uh, you don't know what to do, so your CEO resigns, um, because you've run out of, out of ideas, and the year after, 231 million inflation. What is interesting about this business? They were, like many businesses here, large business, bored, 
risk and audit functions, social and ethics, middle management, lower management, reports on reports on reports, system on system on system, ERP, pulling it all together, large, lethargic business. And when the economy of Zimbabwe started to collapse, that structure couldn't work anymore. They're in the business where they import tires from what they call superior producers in Germany and sell them as first-hand tires using a retail infrastructure that they own. They own the shops. They own the people who are employed in those businesses. They're sitting on their books. Their competitors are small informal traders who are importing second-hand tires from China and set up a shop in one corner, and if it doesn't move, the next day they're set up in a different corner. Well, how do you compete in that environment? So what they had to do was to compete in an environment that was informal, driven by cash, small frequent purchases, the price sensitive. They had to merge both worlds. So what did they do? Well, this is what they've done. They literally collapsed their entire retail infrastructure as we know it. They shut down all the stores. They fired about 83% of, of their employees and made those employees uh, their own entrepreneurs. And so if you drive around Bulawayo and Harare today, you'll see these containers run by people who were formerly under the employment of Sumitomo, who now, by the way, retail those shops. The second thing they went and did is they found the very same entrepreneurs who were running these businesses, standing on street corners, and they said to them, what would we do? What would you do if we gave you a container and allow you to beautifully brand it, and we gave you our entire IT system to run your business on, so you could use our IT system? We only have one condition, well, actually two. Condition number one, we branded our start business, ties on the go. Condition number two, 40% of everything you retail must be our product. Everything else you can make a decision on. Does the strategy work? Let's look at the numbers. They invested $82,000 initial investment in each one. In 11 months, the average generated by each container is $256,000. So just to be clear, the payback period is three and a half months. Drive around South Africa today. For those of you who live in Midrand, go to Ebony Park. You'll see them doing it out there. They've got two in Alex. They've got a few in Soweto. So what is happening is even in South Africa, a developed market, they're using a strategy that's come out of Zimbabwe. The point, the transformation happens, and sometimes it's not a transformation you and I can control. Let's go to India. The people at Tata realized there was a problem in India. Those of you who've been to India know that in the highly and densely populated cities of India, there's a specific problem of people using tuk-tuks to get around. A mother and two children will get on a little bike to get around. In the city of Mumbai, where the population is 22 million people, one city, half the population of South Africa, you and two children getting around on a tuk-tuk is not specifically safe, but the problem is these people couldn't afford to get around in anything else. So Tata built a car that was cheaper to make than the tuk-tuk, and this car is now the fastest-selling car in India for Tata. They call it the Tata One. So for me, and I know you've been having conversations about strategy and transformation, I don't look at it as all this nice, fancy stuff that's happening on the Internet. I try to look at it in the real world and go, how does it actually work for us in the real world? Let me close with this. If we know the change is happening, then let's ask ourselves a question. Why don't we make the change? Why aren't we the agents of the change that needs to happen? My view is that we're too invested on a set strategy. We think along a set path. How many of us here play poker? Yeah? If you play poker, you know there's an expression in poker being called being pot committed. Pot committed basically means you've got too much of your net holdings in the current round that even if you have a bad set of cards, you have to follow the hand because you don't know how it's going to end up. You follow the strategy regardless of how poor it is. What is that called? That's called habitual thinking. You know that things have changed and the disruption has occurred, but you keep thinking the same way. If you change, you might get a bit efficient, but what's really required is for you to innovate and to deliver a new way of doing things. To deliver a new way of doing things. What's stopping us from making these changes? Simple. Every single person in this room, myself included, we're all biased. 
Psychologists have done work around the subject of cognitive biases, and they found that there are two cognitive biases that hold people back. Specifically, listen to this, well-trained technical professionals. See, because we know too much, we're too set in our path of thinking. The very first bias is called the status quo bias. This is Mr. G. Lee Thompson, who was given an opportunity by a young man called Michael, Michael to finance his business. G. Lee Thompson was running a company called Smith Corona, the world's largest producer of typewriters. He financed that young man, Michael, for one year. At the end of the year, he terminated the project. His exact words were, computers are cool, but human beings will always need a typewriter. The young man that Mr. G. Lee Thompson financed for one year and then terminated the funding, his first name was Michael, his last name was Dell. Smith Corona no longer exists. Dell, the world's fourth largest producer of computers. We're set around a status quo. We see the world the way we see the world. The second bias, and this is the more dangerous one, is the confirmation bias. This wouldn't have been a presentation for technical people like yourself if I didn't reference something from Harvard. So here goes. Harvard did some interesting study. They took two groups, 10 people in each group, and they gave those people a thesis, a theory that they had to hold, a belief system. And the, both belief systems were contrary one to the other. They then manufactured two pieces of academic evidence and they gave a piece of academic evidence that supported the one group's view to the other group, and the piece of academic evidence that supported the one group's view to the other group. Basically, they told them information that should help them support the other group. But they laced in this academic research, 63 pages of it, only two strands of data that supported the views of each of those groups. 63 pages, but only two points of data support your view. Everything else supports your competitor's view. And after a day, they asked the teams to come back and report if they still held their views, and both teams came back and, support and, and reported that they'd found two pieces of evidence to support their view. They combed 63 pages of dense academic paperwork to find two views that support their view. This, in my view, are the two biggest reasons why teams and organizations don't change. We don't change because we are set around a bias, around how we think and how we operate. So, when I won the uh, World Championship in Public Speaking for the second time, I uh, came home, and I'll never forget, my mom was very emotional when they picked me up at the airport. And she was emotional because she'd received a letter from the Nelson Mandela Foundation. And he'd invited me to come and meet him. Uh, so, who says no to meeting Nelson, right? Good old man. So, uh, the day came, I went to go meet Nelson Mandela, and I arrived at their offices in Houghton, and I was sitting at reception. You know reception, like, all of your offices have that chair in reception. As you sit down, your knees sort of rise above your face, right? And you, you, know, you try to balance it. So I'm sitting at reception waiting, and Zelda came to me and she said, Hi, are you Mr. Visitatum? <laughs> I said to her, yes, ma'am, Visitatumakwaya. She said, yeah, right, Mr. Timbukwaya. Mr. Mandela is very honored to meet you. Where? Can you come through now? And she took me to, to, through to his private lounge, beautiful private lounge, little pond outside. And she said, please have a seat. Would you like something to drink? I said, ma'am, I would love a cup of tea. My mom said, ask for a cup of tea. My mom gave me three instructions. Ask for a cup of tea, look smart, don't embarrass me. <laughs> In that order. So I said, cool. I said, ma'am, I'd love a cup of tea. So I went and I found a little chair and I sat in this chair and she brought the cup of tea with eat some more biscuits. To this day, I think there was a bit of racial profiling. <laughs> Why would the biscuits eat some more? 
My blacks know what I'm talking about, eh? Hey, we love it some more, guys. And now Woolworths has created short biscuits or short bread. It's the same thing, guys. You're just paying 10 times more. So anyway, so she, <laughs> that's branding for you. So she brings me a little tea. And every time I kept trying to pick up the cup, I was so nervous, I was shaking, so I'd spill. So eventually, I've, I've now spilt around the little saucer, a, a bit of it outside the saucer. I've given up. I'm not even drinking. Now, Nelson, uh, the good old man, um, was really tall. He was 6'5". I'm 6'1 and a half, 6'2". So he was a big guy. But the other thing about him is he had a very heavy walk. Most people walk with the ball of their foot first. He used to walk with the extreme uh, back of his foot, the, the heel. So I heard him coming down the corridor and said, and then I heard him say to Zelda, where is he? <laughs> now, by this time, you're I, ca I cannot explain to you what it's like. You're just nervous. And so he walks up to the room and he says, oh, is he here? And he opened the door. I was so nervous, it felt like the swing took forever. In hindsight, it was just a quick swing. But I heard the door creak. And then he walked into the room. He stood at the center of it. And he said to me, young man, come here. My, my dad had just died, so I got very emotional. And I stood up and I walked up to him and I gave him a hug. He was so big. He hugged me with his big bare hands. And my face was just against his sternum. That's how big he was. And he said, very good. Uh, let's talk. And so we sat down and had a conversation. In truth, he spoke, I just listened. And about 30 minutes later, he then said to me, I have to leave. He'd been called to do some stately business. He said, I have to leave. But do you have any question you'd like to ask me before our meeting ends? My mom said, look smart, don't embarrass me, ask for tea. Okay. Um, what is your dream for this country? And his answer was exactly this. He said, Simply that any man, regardless of his past and regardless of his ability, willing to put in the work, can build a life that he and his family can be proud of. And I think ultimately that is the challenge we all face in this room. In whatever space you're in, we all have the opportunity to become part of Project South Africa and make a positive difference. But ladies and gentlemen, it starts first with us relaxing our biases and being open to learning. I've thoroughly been privileged that you've invited me here. I hope you've enjoyed my presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Vicky. Thank you so much for inspiring us to, to take a chance. We have a small token here of our um, appreciation. Thank you, ma'am. So now it falls to me to say a few thank yous. First of all, I'd like to, um, to say thank you to our sponsors, to Liberty Corporate, Genry, Hanover Re, QED, and RGA for uh, making this possible. But of course, that's only a part of making it possible. The other big vote of thanks must go to the organizing committee, to, to Guy, who I am amazed looks remarkably calm all the time. Um, but I think it's because he's backed up by a hardworking committee and, of course, African Agenda, who um, are really professional in the way they put on this event. So to our sponsors, the organizing committee, thank you so much for putting this all together for us.
And I also think it's a good time, um, Peter was saying to me at, at lunchtime, to, um, to in this forum say a big thank you to the team at the ASA office, um, particularly to, uh, to the executives, to, to Mike and Vim and Pietras and Neil and Janine, who I think are all here, that um, the work that you do in, in, in running the profession and, and, um, and keeping our brand as, as strong as it is, um, is really very valuable to us all. So, so thank you very much. So now we face the final curtain, and it falls to me to sum up the last two and a half days that started with the, um, with the Africa event. I must say, I have been quite fascinated by the amount of facial hair on display at this event, and I'm not sure if it's all Movember related, and I'm sure it's also related to the fact that there's been a good spirit of uh, collaboration in a lot of the discussions that have taken place. I've also experienced a lot of passion in the presentations that have been made on a variety of to topics. There seems to be a strong sense of, of working together to address the complex problems, but at the same time some robust and constructive discussion. So hopefully this is going to lead to some answers that are perhaps not the first things we thought of. I've also noted some words that have been coming up and I've kind of put them together. So I've noted that we are transforming into a customer-orientated profession, enhancing customer value. So I kind of like that combination. And it's thrilling to see so many younger members of the profession walking this talk as well and asking the ethical questions. So well done to all of you who have both presented, provided papers, discussions, and participated in the, in the discussions as well, be they in the public forum or in the, in the corridors and during the breaks. I've also been really impressed by the depth of the research that we've seen today. Many of the papers that, um, that are in your, in your booklets or that you're able to download, you will notice that they are citing research that's been presented at previous conventions. And that's really promising because it means that we are building a body of knowledge and building on each other's work. Also, the breadth of the research that's taking place and the number of practice areas um, that, are, that are covered. And the willingness of all the participants, the authors from industry, academia, the regulators, to share their thoughts and their, and their work. Peter mentioned in his opening that we're fairly unique internationally in having this kind of cross-practice um, event on an annual basis. And I think it's so important to ensure that we don't become siloed in our thinking and in our practices. So I hope that you've all taken away something from these last few days, something that will affect what you do and how you think about um, what you do. I will certainly be eating off a smaller plate and eating more nuts. But on a serious note, I hope that all of these discussions will continue. This week, for example, the the re re revision to the pension fund tax laws are being debated in Parliament. We have again heard that the health insurance demarcation regulations may be released, and our considered input is required on a number of these topics. So it's important that we continue to be having these kind of discussions. In the last week also, and if any of you have been following the news today, it seems that the world has taken on a whole new level of chaos. And I'm fairly optimistic still that we can assist in creating some order in that chaos and assisting in providing some kind of protection mechanism as people are feeling quite frightened about the, the future. So, to continue those discussions, 
there is a Linga Longa event that will now be taking place just outside the ballroom foyer. So please join us. There will be drinks and snacks, and um, it will help you to, I think, avoid some of the, uh, the Santon traffic in a fairly pleasant way. Also, your name tag pouches, your lanyards, delegate bags, they can all be reused. So if you don't plan to, um, to use them, then please drop them off at the, the registration desk on your way out, where you can also collect um, parking tickets. And your delegate bag will um, actually be donated to one of the society's um, partners. This year it's going to be the, the Catholic Women's League who run a maths enrichment program in, in Mamelodi. So if you're not using your bags, please be sure to, to drop them off. Next November we will be meeting up again in Cape Town. And just before the convention we'll be hosting the semi-annual meetings of the International Actuarial Association. So we're working on persuading some of the illustrious members of the global actuarial profession to stay on and, and participate in our convention, either by making presentations or just by getting some exposure to the excellent work done by South African actuaries. So please give some thought to how you can make a contribution and, um, and make a contribution to, to growing the, the profession in South Africa as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing you all next year and hopefully well before that as well. So in the interim, take care and have a safe trip home and a good festive season. Thank you very much for your participation.